So welcome to another bonus episode of Funny Old World. This is a special edition all about Africa, and I really hope it's going to be a must listen for the travel industry. So please do subscribe and share. Every listen counts and helps us amplify messages that matter. We recorded these conversations live at We Are Africa, a trade event in Cape Town. Now, if you haven't listened to the first six episodes of Funny Old World, our climate podcast series, please do listen back to our chat all about the causes, symptoms and solutions in the sustainability conversation. But here it's a bonus episode. We're all about positive impact through travel. Simon, you hadn't been to South Africa before. No, I hadn't. So when I got there, I really went for it. I went up Table Mountain. I walked along the beach at Camps Bay and along the waterfront. And I stayed in some great places like the iconic Mount Nelson Hotel. We had lunch there, didn't we? And the Pineapple House Boutique Hotel. Oh, and I ate like a king and put on about 100 kilos and need elasticated <laughs> trousers from now on. But my best experience was my pilgrimage to Robin Island, where I saw where Nelson Mandela was kept in his cell. And I really recommend that as an experience because you're shown round by ex-prisoners, which makes the the whole thing so just so much more personal. So actually, I listened to a guy called Christo Brand during We Are Africa. He was Nelson Mandela's prison warden. He wrote the book Doing Life with Mandela, My Prisoner, My Friend. Wow, was he ever a reminder of the power of emotive, honest storytelling on topics that can be uncomfortable. Yeah, and if you want to hear more about storytelling, people should go and listen to the part one of these specials where we talk to that great panel about what makes a good story. But there were so many great conversations that we had. Everyone wants to be more eco and learn about what they're doing on their journey to sustainability. But when I got back, lots of my friends asked me, you know, what exactly is We Are Africa? I sort of explained that it was an expo for the luxury travel industry. But Julia, it's your world and they're your people. So how would you have explained it to my friends? And just for clarity, imagine they're all like me. So speak slowly, no long words. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously, I've been a journalist for more than 20 years, particularly in travel. And so it's a great get together from my perspective of hotel owners, safari hosts, travel operators, and the actual agents who are selling these trips. Uh, And it was really poignant that we are in Africa, the continent where 54 countries collectively are only responsible for 4% of all global emissions. And as I always talk about, international tourism is one of the most powerful tools for wealth distribution in the fight for for better socioeconomic uplift in, in communities that are absolutely on the front line of the climate emergency and where they're most vulnerable to extreme weather. And that was Africa. Yeah, well, hopefully everyone can listen to uh, these two podcasts and be inspired by how other businesses have been successful adopting some of the techniques that we discuss. Yes, we talked to, and we're going to hear from some of my favourite travel industry people. Nelson Mandela talked about Ubuntu. Have you heard of that word, Ubuntu? No. The origin is I am because we are, and it's that real sense of belonging and community. And that is what I felt at We Are Africa. And I think we're going to hear from some of the fantastic people from this community. We're going to hear about, well, why you need a dedicated sustainability officer. We're going to try and give airtime to a diverse range of voices, as we always do. And we'll tackle less talked about topics such as why gender plays an important role in conservation. And to 
everyone listening, don't don't sigh. The guys out there in particular, don't sigh that this is a feminist rant. It's important. Yeah, you, you, you know, Simon, you didn't mind being sandwiched between all these strong women, did you? <laughs> There's an image. I'll confess, I did feel a little intimidated, but luckily for me, you were on the panel, so there was a familiar face there. So I think I held my own. Well, well, we'll let the listeners decide. And it's not often I hear you say it's less intimidating with me there. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about how women are changing conservation and it falls to me as the token man on the stage to interview these three strong women. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Hello, everyone. My name is Noabi Samjoli. I work as a sustainability practitioner for Weaver. Very passionate about women empowerment passionate about conservation and really my line of work is application of sustainability within businesses and organizations. Thank you. Hi, I'm Suzanne. I own Classic Portfolio and we have 19 members uh, which gives us 55 camps and lodges across 33 protected areas in 13 African countries. So we have the largest footprint of unique experiences across Africa and very much committed to sustainability. My role is not in conservation. That gets done by conservationists and people who know what they're doing. I don't. I do create the sustainable business models that drives them commercially and supports what they need on the ground. So we understand their needs and we create a commercial solution for them. Thank you. And Juliet, just because I'm aware there may be new people here who won't have seen you, could you introduce yourself as well? Yes, I'm Juliet Kinsman. I'm a sustainability writer. I do a podcast with Simon called Funny Old World. And actually, um, I'm just here to support this conversation because I think it's important. And I made a documentary in Morocco uh, called Changing Worlds in the Atlas Mountains, which was actually inspired by the Pure community. And it really, really showed me the importance and significance of uh, educating young girls and the, and the power, and that really is, is relevant to this story around conservation too. First question, and I want to take it to all of you in turn, what is it that women bring to the table that we've been missing for so long, do you think? Um, society has raised us to be kind and empathetic. And secondly, by nature, we are nurturing, we are caregivers. We are also very, like, compassionate in the sense that these are qualities that I truly believe distinguish us in the workplace. And I truly believe as well that these qualities contribute to the building of trust and confidence, especially when you lead a team. Another factor that I want to bring as well is that I truly believe that there is a symbiotic relationship between women and nature. And there's a reason why we use the term mother nature, because we are caregivers, we are nurturing. And we see this through the women in so many communities within the African continent, particularly indigenous rural women who have the unique knowledge in taking care of the natural environment that surrounds them. Women have a stake in nature. So that is what we bring to the table. Thank you. I believe that we all have a role to play. And very often the concept of conservation, you think of men in ammo, you know, sort of their khaki outfits out in the middle of the bush, you know, the gun doing something really brave. You know, guys, that is important and that is a part of conservation. But we need to narrow the gap between what you think conservation is out there and how we can influence it in here. And what we can be doing on a daily basis as our contribution towards conservation. 
And that's where the role of women comes in. If you've been listening to any of the conversations before this, we spoke about the narrative and we spoke about how we communicate conservation. That is becoming a critical, critical aspect of conservation going forward. It's not just about doing the action stuff out there. It's about communicating the need, how we should all be changing, and what we can all be doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Women, as Noabi says, we nurture, we grow, we instill, we actually bring everybody in. And I think that the idea of collaboration and being more intuitive to what the need is for conservation is a critical part of what women do now and what they will be doing going forward. Look, the proverb, you all know better than me. If you teach a boy, you teach an individual. If you teach a girl, you teach a family, a village. It, it translates in many different ways. Um, so I, I would, and also I just say we're 50% in nature. Nature needs balance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm getting a lot of balance here on the stage. Um, <laughs> so why do you think it's taken so long for the world to wake up to the vital role that women play in conservation? Or is that a provocative question? There's so many possible reasons, and I think people in the audience can agree with me as well when I mention factors such as gender bias, stereotypes, I could go on. But I know for me personally, it's, you know, you cannot aspire to be something you cannot see. So I'll bring an example, you know, during my environmental science as an undergraduate at Rhodes University, you know, I did not necessarily see, you know, a person who looked like me, you know, within the field of conservation. But, you know, I never stayed in that corner that, you know what, I don't see anyone who looks like me, therefore I should not proceed within this career path. So I think really some of the factors that I've mentioned around gender bias, stereotypes, yes, these are factors that are still prevailing, still in 2023, but these are some of the factors that have, hold, like, that have really held us back as women. So that is just some of the factors that I can mention as well, yeah. I think we are just the best covert operators. We just get it done quietly. We've always got it done quietly. We've never had to stand up and shout about it like the other half of the population. So I think the time is coming right now for us just to be a little bit more vocal and stand up and shout. But we've always contributed, always contributed. We just didn't shout about it as loudly. Something Suzanne said to me the other day, which I really loved, and for me, you know, the word conservation is almost a bit intimidating. I live in a city. I can't relate to it that easily. I'm not someone who feels like I don't play a role in conservation. She said, all of us, wherever we sit, if we sit at a desk at our computer, we can still be conservationists. And I love that idea of being keyboard conservationists. We can be keyboard warriors. And uh, I mean, obviously, I'm going to also say Weaver is, your, is a way of being a keyboard conservationist. But we can all be keyboard conservators. Yeah, I know, but it's so much cool if you're wearing camo outfits. <laughs> <laughs> How do we support women um, who are out there doing what they can to protect nature? And I'm putting that to you, Suzanne, because your eyes are flashing at me. Oh, thank you, Simon. I believe that we all have a role to play. And I really want to challenge the women sitting in this room. What are you doing? Not the charities out there who are doing something already, but what is every woman and every man in this room doing to contribute towards conservation? Because if you are not doing something tangible that you can proudly put your name towards, you need to think about it. We work in a green industry. Our, our whole safari industry operates on the wild economy that we have here in Africa. We make money out of this continent being in a good way. 
we all have to contribute to it daily to make sure that what we are giving back and what we have for our future generations, future business opportunities coming out of Africa lasts. So yes, become that keyboard conservationist. Don't worry about the camo gear. Don't worry about the AK-47. Don't worry about becoming a guide. You can do it by your marketing message, your sales message, how you plan a client's itinerary, how you display your invoices. God, you've all heard me going on about this. Show people on an invoice what their sustainability impact is. When you design that itinerary, go to some random place in the middle of God knows where, you know, that is actually doing something really good. Don't stick to the Cape Town Kruger Vic Falls the whole time. That's the bread and butter. We all can do something very easily. So that was a conversation that could actually be a podcast episode in its own right, I think, don't you? Actually, not a bad idea, as we could discuss some of the African female pioneers in conservation that they went on to discuss. Names like the Nobel Peace Prize winner, Wangari Matai, who founded the Greenbelt Movement, alongside Vanessa Nakata and Elizabeth Watutu, who are leading the youth activist movement globally. And then Simon, you spoke to Louise Cotter of Cotter Safari. They're in the two lodges in the Masai Mara in Kenya, and they're part of the Long Run program. And the 4C framework of the Long Run is, of course, the foundation for Weaver's measurement software. You're going to ask me the four Cs, aren't you? I <laughs> am. Do. I am. Do you remember what I do. Are? I do. I've got them etched on my brain. So it's community, conservation, culture, commerce. Well done. That is exactly right. We need, we need to speak to all of those pillars in sustainability. It's a great framework. Yeah. And our experience was on how to convert today's customers and why the best guest experiences also achieve impact. And during our chat, we touched on one of your favorite travel trends. <laughs> Simon, I hope what you're talking about is the uh, behind the scenes tours. No, Julia, it was all about neck pillows, the new trend in travel. Of course, it was uh, when hosts take the guests on back of house tours. Have a listen to this. How do you talk to your customers? Well, you know, we actually started, we, we took a moment in COVID and realized that everyone in the Mara does big five game drives. And we felt that it was really important that we stood for something different. And so we decided not to talk to customers first. We actually decided to figure out what mattered within the context that we were in and try and develop a series and curate a series of impact activities that mattered. So to give you just two examples, we, we developed 23 of them, but one was a, a walk with a local medicine man showcasing indigenous knowledge, medicinal plants, and foraged foods. Another one was uh, about the plight of vultures. There are keystone species, uh, and over half the population in the Mara has been decimated through poisoning. So we developed and curated these experiences that we felt were important. We made them fun and compelling and engaging, so clients would come in. So really, we talked to customers through experiences. Juliet, at the beginning, when we were talking about trends, one of the trends that she was talking about was BTS, behind the scenes or back of house. Why is it important to, to you guys that customers know about how you operate? We didn't do it to monetize it. We did it because it was the right thing to do. And we hoped by explaining it and having an ethos. So we, we give customers the choice to book with us or book elsewhere. But we say, these are the types of things you can do when you're with us. And this is why it matters. And just that add-on, this is why it matters, has really seen 
a difference to our bottom line, incredibly. Um, so I think it's important to communicate, but give people the options, opt in, opt out. But it's also important to communicate inward with our team and with the community, because a lot of what we offer uh, relies on indigenous knowledge, for instance. And so we want to make sure there's enough canned experiences out there that ours are uh, of value, authentic, and willing, in that there's a willingness by the team to communicate, because if they don't own it, it will come across as uh, not authentic. We wanted to do what's right within the context that we found ourselves. It really started from that and with a lot of passion. And we thought if we were passionate about it, maybe others could also be passionate about it. So it started from that. But in terms of results, uh, our business in 2022 was 38% up from pre-COVID levels. So it's working. So the bottom line, it's working. In terms of not just money, but in terms of making an impact, the medicine man that I talked to, he's called Letterlet, by the way, um, he had a documentary made on him that now has 11 million YouTube views. So I think getting that indigenous knowledge out, you know, it's important. Juliet was talking earlier about 80% of biodiversity being under the sort of care of 5% of the population, indigenous population. And the more of us that can say, you know, book a property that's on community land, you know, it does have an impact. And so I think it's beyond just the bottom line. These very small activities that we started at a very local level can have a, a, a ripple-on effect into the industry. This may be a very naive question, and we did chat about this before, but I want you to tell people what it said. I wondered whether, if you're having a repeat guest come back, is it harder to upsell to somebody who's done all those experiences before, and do you really want new guests coming in who are having a brand new experience? But um, you put me straight on that, didn't you, Louise? I think if you've got a repeat guest, they're vested in you. And the moment they're vested in you, you can work with them uh, to follow your passions and their passions. It may be just another safari. It may be word of mouth to some of their friends. It may be a donation. But I think a repeat client is, is worth gold. What's the secret about not being preachy? I'm going to sound preachy if I answer <laughs> that. But, um, I, I mean, I think for us, it's making it a fun, compelling, engaging activity or experience, a moving experience. And within that, maybe there's some messaging. Um, we've, we've started a really small safari and it's around entomology. And the moment you say that, people start yawning. So we've called it Mini Beasts in the Mara. Mini Beasts. And we're, just, we're actually aiming for the kids' audience there. So I think as well how you communicate to customers and how you deliver needs to be accessible and fun. What I loved about this conversation is that you highlighted the need to look at the, the tiniest details in biodiversity, insects, Instead of the usual, you know, box ticking big five, that comes from, did you know it comes from the hunting days when those were the most desirable creatures people would go out and shoot and oh, right. mount on their walls. <laughs> okay, and what were they? Imagine lion, elephant, zebra, hippopotamus, uh, uh, baboon? No, not quite. Okay, what, what are, are they? they? So, you got it right. Lion, leopard, elephant, buffalo, and rhino. Ah, 
That's horrible, isn't it? It's interesting, though, that because this actually ties into a conversation that you and I had when we were out there, when you mentioned to me the importance of decolonizing the way we talk about travel or colonizing, as I said, um, which is something that never crossed my mind before. But I guess, you know, you're all about the language. It is really important. Yeah, I mean, as you know, I'm a, I'm a big advocate for really thinking about the words we use and why we use them and using every term with real awareness intention so a, a phrase that isn't fashionable would be colonial charm that would be an example of super lazy sort of travel writing speaking about the look and feel of a property glamorizing the sort of colonial era which was a lot more comfortable for a certain set of people that experienced it and now it just sounds dated you know it's not just me being politically correct it's about showing respect for every perspective another great chat you had was with one of my favorite long-run lodges in south africa an incredible biodiversity hotspot. They also encourage all to look at the, the tinier creatures. And um, they started managing their sustainability journey 10 years ago, working with the Long Runs Four Seas to better understand what they were doing right and what they were doing wrong. Sorry. I see you've avoided saying their name, leaving it for me to say. Busted. Busted. <laughs> okay. So this was Ruth Crichton and Clayton Neiman from Deep Breath. Group boss, uh, when we talked about the secrets to sustainable, you can't even say sustainable. Sorry, but let, let, I think, I think it's group boss. I can't do it either. You, I know it's really guttural. Okay. Like, yeah. I'm going to edit that out, obviously. Uh, when we <laughs> talked about the secrets to sustainable luxury success, um, big part of group boss, I, I'm having a go. Um, their success lies in, in, in delegating responsibility to the right people across their team whilst taking a really structured approach to the monitoring and implementation of the sustainability program. And they really, really invest in community and people, actually, as well as biodiversity. Cool. Well, let's have a listen. Oh, by the way, do you know what group boss actually means? No. Yes, I do. Go on, what? (laughs) You know you want to say it. Great bush. That's right. Hello, my name is Ruth. Um, I've been with group boss eight and a half years. I started on the foundation side and had so much fun with the community and the conservation projects and, and, and experiencing the positive impact that tourism could drive and that they've uh, brought me more onto the commercial side to tell the stories of community and conservation as it's so core to our DNA. And I'm, I'm Clayton. I've been with Rupert for about 10 years and I'm the operations manager at the lodge, which means I deal with a lot of federal departments, a lot of staff at the property as well as a lot of the foundation work. So it's quite a diverse role at Rootposs. Thanks, guys. Now, you've been working on the sustainability of Rootposs for over a decade now. Do you feel there's still room for improvement? So taking your cue, Simon, um, and actually Julie, we started working with the Long Run 4C framework already over 10 years ago. And part of that is every year setting targets and sustainability goals. Initially, our goals every year was a 10% reduction across the board. And um, so sustainability is a journey. So, and every year you learn and you tweak and you adjust. So yes, it is a continuous journey and you're constantly tweaking and targeting and working towards us and having a framework and measuring help, help do that. Yeah. And I think having a goal is having 10% less every year. That's going to get you to a ceiling at some point because you can only go so much before turning the power off completely for the guest. So, and in that way, we then reevaluate and reassess what is 
best for us and for the guests um, in terms of experience and what we can give back or t- take less of out of our uh, natural resources, really. It's a learning curve. So also, like we were saying, with the trees and the bees, um, we've also learned. And we have 180 hives on Hrotbos, but we've also got a PhD student studying, doing a study on Hrotbos at the moment because if you put too many bees into a location, you're actually crowding out other insects. So whilst it was part of our measure, measurement, okay, how many bees can we put in and save the bees as the apex pollinator, what impact is that? Act? You learn then along the way, and now conservationists are now looking, oh, but there are a whole host of other pollinators and insects, um, and oh, is that then crowding out all the other pollinators that play a key role in our landscape? So it's a, a learning curve yeah. all the way along. Has this resulted in economic benefits, um, be that consumer interest or operational savings? And can you give examples of that? I, I think there's a bit of both in that because... I don't know if many of you know Fruitpost, but we've got a very different setup where we can actually showcase what we do. So we've got an activity called Living the Futures, and this is where we can take you, uh, take our guests, um, and not a forced activity, but they go out on a, an amazing flower drive, for instance, and they can stop off at our foundation, which is where we can show them what we actually do, and it all feels part of the experience. For the guests in the long run, in that sense, we uh, can have a a direct or indirect financial impact because guests will then know for future, they'll tell their friends, they tell their colleagues, and that can bring us a financial reward in a way in the long run. But I think from what we do every day, our efficiency programs of making sure you have LED lights in, running your aircons at certain times of the day, heating up the lodge in the morning early with firewood instead of running the aircons in the middle of the day, or stuff like that, that makes a difference and that's immediate reward. So yes, just to recap on what Clayton was saying, sustainability is actually translates into operational efficiency. If you're measuring your water and understanding your extraction and your usage, um, you can then identify a massive leak, etc. So sustainability is operational efficiency, and by being more operationally efficient, then that helps you make informed financial decisions either way. I mean, you talk so well about it as though it's sort of an easy thing to do, but it can't be, really. There must be obstacles, hurdles that you face. Uh, Tell us some of those. No ways. It's easy. It's easy. (laughs) Thank Um, you. Off you go. (laughs) I think we struggle with it every day, really. I mean, we've nailed it or not nailed it, but we have a good way of going about it. Um, But there are struggles every day. Probably once a week, we have a fight with someone about something. Um, and it's, it's not really a fight. It's just making sure that everybody still understands why we're doing what we're doing and finding out actually do they understand why we're doing what we're doing because that's quite, a, uh, quite an important part for us because if the staff, all of us, don't understand why we're doing it, you're not going to buy into it. Um, and I think getting the buy-in of staff really is the big thing because as soon as you have this, your, the staff with you, holding your hand, working with you, they can come up with new ideas. It, it's not from the top down. It's from the bottom up, and that's where it actually starts making a difference. If that's sort of your, your culture and that's your values and everything you're doing, you're pushing through that sustainable prism, don't they, don't, don't they buy into it very easily? So hospitality, I mean, comes under pressure. It can be pressurized at times. We all have uh, high-pressure moments or pressure moments in the kitchen. Things can get quite heated. 
chefs are can be quite volatile. Do you want to share, Ruth? Is there, <laughs> is there a story? <laughs> so at that point in time where, where staff are under pressure, maybe they may not make the right decisions, but it's to then go back and see and learn and tweak and improve. And it's exponential when, when it is in, incrementally learning along the way. So like the bee conversation, um, and I love sitting in our conservation meetings every Tuesday because we're all learning along the way. So learning about the trees, how old the trees are. Um, then my conservationists will tell me that the trees walk. Um, where do the trees walk to? So you're learning along, incrementally along the way about all parts of sustainability. Are you guys smoking anything in these <laughs> meetings with the walking trees? No, not at all. Okay, Clayton. But I think um, it's, it's just as you said, um, it's like the weaver bring, bird bringing a little sprig of grass every time, and it's exactly the same way it is. You have to just build on what you have. Now, you're obviously in a unique context where, where you're based and where, where you're set, but are there any things, transitional things, that you could teach sort of a hotel in London or in New York um, about the things that you've learned? I think that there are some universal principles um, to do with sustainability that all of us can take on board but need to um, be mindful of everybody's unique contextual intelligence. So uh, Cape Town and many cities around the world are facing, are, I think Madrid and a couple of other cities are um, battling with water issues um, so water footprinting similarly could be applied in a New York hotel, procuring sustainability, really understanding your procurement um, and supplies chain is also something that could be universal. Oh, in what way? Well, looking at your supply chain in terms of where it's coming from. Is it pineapples from Myanmar or so it's looking for the most ethical and local supply chain? I think it's it's... It's very specific to an area, so like Hrutbos has a policy of we would try and like to buy all our produce within an 80-kilometer radius of the property. However, there's challenges to that because you can't get everything that you need in that distance. So that's what we're doing, and we think a lot of businesses can buy locally and improve that on that. I think also just operating efficiently, like making sure you know you're using LEDs, making sure you're losing less water, uh, making sure you have Lights switched on in buildings, um, if they're not being used, maybe have motion sensor lights if it's back of house or whatever. I think there's universal things like Guruset that we can use. Um, but we also understand there's some things that some people just can't do because of yeah. where they're at. And we are just lucky that we can. Oh, I love that conversation. And I know behind the scenes you were there having a bit of a giggle trying to master your South African accent, Simon. But we'll spare the listeners, shall we? Yes. How's it? It was too hectic out there for me, Juliet. South, Af South African accent. Yes, yes, that was it. <laughs> uh, very funny. Off you go. So what I also loved was seeing Weaver's awesome water footprinting video, all about what they're doing. And you can find that on Instagram. You can go to at Boutico Hotels. So that's B-O-U-T-E-C-O-H-O-T-E-L-S on Instagram. Right. Finally, it seemed fitting that as you had started the day, in episode one of these podcast specials, discussing about having a dedicated or full-time sustainability manager that we heard from Prince Ngamani, who's a sustainability manager at Swali Kalahari, who explained why a sustainability manager is such a key player. Yes, I must admit, you know, often us journalists, we have to write these trend reports 
and it's partly what we want to manifest. So I thought Prince did, well, he did a royal job. Oh, very good. And I like the way as well that you thought about him and therefore manifested him. Yeah, he was great. Prince Charming. All right. Good evening, everyone. I'm sure I've already introduced myself there. I'm Prince from Tualu. I'm a sustainability officer at Tualu. Um, I actually thought there was, there was going to be a pulpit here because I'm about to convert someone here within the crowd. <laughs> Where's my it. pulpit? All right. So I'm here to, to talk to you about why you need a sustainability manager and how is that going to help your property? So I've got four questions that I think that would be important in terms of you deciding how to get a sustainability officer or why a sustainability officer is important. So the first question would be, why should you have a sustainability officer on property? Each and every property has a negative impact towards the environment. And you need to be able to measure your negative impact towards the environment so that you can be able to hold yourself accountable. And then also you need to be able to know what extent is your impact so that you can work on reducing your impact. And also you can be able to try and introduce new sustainable ways that will help boost your production and your daily operations. The second question is, where is the world heading to? So, so far the world is heading down very fast because of all our negative impacts towards the environment. And uh, us as human beings, we are custodians. Uh, we are the custodians of this world and uh, we are morally obligated to be as kind as possible towards our planet. So it is up to us to be more kinder to our planet and it is up to us to do as little as we can each and every day uh, uh, towards sustainability. Okay, uh, the third question is, what are your competitors doing? So your competitors out there um, are building unique sustainability platforms at their lodges. So we see now um, there's a trend of electric cars. We see a lot of people are trying to get green. So all those things eventually count towards initiatives uh, uh, towards sustainability. And that's what you have to be able to look at, look at the trends and how, can you, how you can be able to improve. So another thing is that guests are starting to be aware of what's happening around. They're starting to travel consciously. They're starting to uh, be mindful of uh, all the, the sustainability trends that are happening. So eventually, this is the future. And it's a future that we are not necessarily doing uh, anyone a favor but ourselves. Okay, another thing is that within this sustainability journey, there are other properties who are your competitors, but you can be able to also learn from. So they provide you with uh, learning opportunities. I know us being part of the long run provided us with an opportunity to travel to some of the properties. Those are some of the opportunities that you should be able to grab. And uh, the last question is, how do you achieve uh, once you've got a new sustainability officer? So data is key. Uh, you cannot be able to make informed decisions if you do not have a data. The last remark that I want to make is that all of us here can make a difference each and every day. Sustainability is an infinite game that requires our action each and every day to make the world a better place. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. That was really interesting because I think sort of people 
want to know why they should have a sustainability manager. And um, bless him, he really, really rehearsed a lot, didn't need to get that right. But I really think he got the message over. I think it's so key. And so many of these trade shows, people just waffle and go on. We had our 15-minute power sessions. Can you imagine people waffling and going on? I mean... <laughs> you wouldn't stand for that. I mean, Julie Cheapton turned up going, Juliet does not... What did she say? Juliet does, does not tolerate unprepared... Panelists. An unprepared panel. As Yeah, as we discussed in... <laughs> the, in the first part of our uh, bonus episodes. So what other what other topics and experiences stand out for you, Simon? It was a pretty, pretty hectic couple yeah. of few days. I mean, I have to say, I, I loved it. I loved South Africa. And, you know, I had preconceptions and going a week early helped dispel a lot of those. But one of the things I just couldn't get over, and nobody had warned me really, and that was load shedding, which is when a power station can't meet demand for electricity, so the power is switched off. And basically every day... South African cities turn off the power for half the day in three or four hour blocks. It's been going on since before lockdown, so they're all used to it, but nobody mentioned it. And as one of my friends pointed out, well, I guess it's like if somebody comes over here, we wouldn't tell them, oh, once a month there are no trains. <laughs> We're just kind of used train. to it. We don't have, well, just like to say to all our listeners, if you come to the UK, once a month there aren't no trains, but we do occasionally have strikes. I mean, we, there wouldn't be a selling point, wouldn't no. be a. No, no, absolutely. But load shedding is every day, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, totally. It's it's pretty mad. I was staying at a really beautiful property called Seven Copies up in Franschhoek in the Winelands afterwards. And so they had to publish the times um, when, you know, when there was going to be load shedding. So you could prepare and you knew for a few hours a day you wouldn't have you wouldn't have electricity. I will say, though, with South Africa, you know, it's something I always suggest everyone considers when we talk about countries and where's sustainable, their national grid is run on coal predominantly. And so the load shedding is pushing more and more properties to transition to green energy. And the positive side of this, as you sort of said, and South Africans will tell you is they are a people who always face any problem head on and innovate. So some of them do have generators, but a vast number are now investing in solar power, which can only be good for the environment. Okay, so that's mine. So what about you? What what topics and experiences stood out for you? I was really grateful that on the last day I went out and took part in, they had a tree, tree planting experience with Ambeyond. And also I met the most incredible guy. So James Fernie runs a charity called Utandu. And he took me to, to the settlements, local settlements, and meeting some incredible people out there. Because, you know, there is another side to South Africa or Cape Town, and it's important to recognize how tourism can really, really benefit the immediate communities it's in. So thanks to him, I had a, had a real sort of reality check. I went to a school made out of plastic bottles and I saw what people are trying to do um, in the more in the more deprived parts of, of Cape Town. Yeah, and I think that, as you say, it is really important to sort of see the other side. I mean, you know me, I'm hardly a uh, radicalised Black Panther, uh, not just because I'm not a Black Gloves and Black Beret man, for starters. I think it's a strong look for you, Simon. Do you? Oh, okay, yeah. maybe, I'll, maybe I'll go shopping after this. Um, but it was a little strange to be in the minority as a Black person at an African event. And I think Weaver did a really good job of getting some new and diverse voices on the stage that we could talk to and hear from. Uh, but just like our panel on women in conservation, you know, I, I guess it's a journey and that journey has to start somewhere. And I think we need to have a lot more honest, uncomfortable conversations. And that's why we're here, isn't it, Simon? That's why we're here, Juliet. So I really do hope you've enjoyed this bonus episode of Funny Old World. Please do listen back to our full series and subscribe, share, do everything you can to help us get some more uncomfortable conversations. And, and well, I hope 
entertaining conversations as well. Mm-hmm.